Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Which Kelly are you? Edward. People call me Ned. I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Mad Max 2. It's my kind of movie. Shut up! Shut up! Your friend can't come back, Sage. Oh, he's disabled. I'm this carer. You're blind. He's an equal opportunity employer. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip hop anymore. G'day and welcome to The Curb. My name's Andrew Pierce, and this is the podcast that's all focused on Australian film and culture. This podcast is proudly recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and a pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. On this particular episode, I catch up with the director of the new Australian documentary, Wild Things, Sally Ingleton. And this is a really great film that I highly recommend everybody heading along to go and see. It is a film that spends a year on the front line with environmental activists and their work in trying to save the future of the country, save the future of the planet and stop the impact of climate change. We are looking at the school protests in Queensland. We are looking at the protests against the Adani mine, and we are looking at the protests in Tasmania against logging. It's a really, really powerful film, but beautifully and tenderly photographed and shot, and has some really fascinating and wonderful moments with pivotal figures in protest history in Australia, like... Bob Brown. There is a lot to learn from this film, and it's the kind of film that, yes, while it does have a bit of swearing in it, I, I mean, we've all heard a little bit of swearing, so that's perfectly fine. I believe it's the kind of film that you should take your family along to go and see, and especially take kids along to go and see as well. This is the, the country and the, the world that they are going to inherit, and they need to understand what they can do to stop what's going on. And there is a lot of really powerful moments in this particular film that uh, I think that they, they would learn a lot from and have a great understanding of uh, the power that they have as citizens in the world in being able to protest and stop things from happening. It is a really important film. Again, uh, this is director Sally Ingleton and talking about wild things. We're going to have a listen to the trailer and be back with that interview. In the end, you've got two choices. You lie at the bottom of the hole, or you get up and you fight. I'm here because I really believe that this mine should not go ahead. We want to try to make sure that not another tree falls in this forest. That have been voted into power aren't taking responsibility. If they were taking responsibility, then we wouldn't have to. 
What has happened is that there's a great movement of people who now realize that by their own strength, they can do something about the environment in which they live. I wasn't up to it early on, but when I realized that I wasn't speaking for myself, I was speaking for the river, it became easier. You know, you've been doing these kinds of films for, for quite a while now, and going back to Muddy Waters, which was you know, talking about the future of 2010, which seemed so far away back in 2003, um, and talking about the changes that would happen with the Great Barrier Reef and things like that. I'm wondering for you as a filmmaker who has been covering these kinds of subjects for so long, how does it? How do you manage when there's not much change uh, politically and and societally uh, when we're not having much traction with action on climate change? How does that? How does that affect you as a filmmaker? Well, I think as a filmmaker, you know, you want to make stories that that will have some impact and that are obviously about you know, critical social issues or social justice issues of the time. And I started making environment films, you know, back in about 2000, I suppose. I did a film that was about, um, actually called Dolphin Mania, that was looking at a family that ran a wild dolphin swing program in Port Phillip Bay. And there was a lot of environmental issues that were sort of tied into into that film. And, and then I started working on this, terrific story called Muddy Waters, Life and Death on the Great Barrier Reef. And that was really all about, I guess, the impact that poor land management and particularly banana and sugarcane farming at the time was having on the Great Barrier Reef. And the story followed a community of farmers as well as a team of marine scientists that were doing a very interesting study on all the inshore coral reefs. And the scientists were showing that those inshore reefs were really um, suffering and they just weren't recovering at the same rate. Uh, and they put that down to the regular impact of just constant flows of chemicals coming off the land. And I guess what did start to happen in the process of making that film was that I think the farming community did start to become more aware that they did need to take responsibility and certainly there was, you know, incremental change. I'm not sure, you know, that's nearly 20 years ago now, whether there is much better land management happening on on the Great Barrier Reef now. But, you know, this bigger looming problem has kind of taken over and that's climate change because a lot of the, the damage being caused to coral reefs is, is just from these increased extreme weather events. Um, I mean, just numerous cyclones that have really hammered the reef. And a lot of those cyclones don't actually reach the shore, and so people don't worry about them. But they do have a, a really um, severe impact on, on coral reefs. They break them up and smash the reef. And cyclones, I mean, they're, you know, it's a natural weather event, but if they're happening more and more regularly, then the reefs just don't get a chance to, to recover. And, and that issue has been around for a long time now. And it, you know, when I talk to the scientists, they are really frustrated that just not enough is happening, not enough um, leadership from, from governments, not only in our, our particular government, but governments around the world to reduce carbon emissions. And I think a lot of scientists just 
they don't know what they have to do in order to get the message through because the science has been um, clear, crystal clear for probably two decades now about the impacts of climate change. And what's tragic is that we've just wasted a huge amount of time when if we had had um, you know, a kind of zero emissions policy put in place much, much earlier, then you know, we would have had a really good chance of reducing the temperature rises and reducing the amount of carbon emissions that we're putting in the air. But we're still arguing about it. You know, there's still people arguing about is there climate change or not. I mean, it's absurd, really. Yeah. I it, hope it, that... It's so obvious that it's existing. Government in, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we've now got a, a new president in, um, in the United States and, you know, one of the first things he did literally minutes after he took office was um, get the United States to rejoin the Paris uh, Agreement. And, you know, that's a really, really good sign because it does send a message to many other countries around the world that he's going to take climate change seriously and hopefully get a really good um, emissions policy in place. So fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the other things he did as well was obviously put a stop to that massive destructive oil line too, which had been the site of, right. of, of so many protests as well, which is a good kind of transition to wild things in a way. Because I think one of the things, especially with something like the Great Barrier Reef, even though it's a tourist destination, there is a an aspect of out of sight, out of mind. And that kind of feels like the same for the forest down in Tasmania, the Tarkan Forest down in Tasmania, where it's out of sight, out of mind. Not everybody's visiting there every day. But as we see in wild things, there is destruction happening there that is so devastating and so brutal uh, that we need to see these kinds of things taking place. Um, I guess one of the things I want to ask is, Wild Things is a really powerful film in so many different ways, and it is a film obviously about protesting and the power of protests. Um, do you see your film as an act of protesting itself, or is it more just uh, do you see it as a monitoring of protesting or, or, or documenting of protesting? Look, I suppose the reasons why I wanted to focus on frontline nonviolent action was that I think, you know, by and large, a lot of the protesters get a really bad rap. Um, you know, they're often criticised, um, you know, by by governments. You know, there's all sorts of rules and laws that are coming in constantly to try and stop people from protesting and making it illegal. And you know, people do have a right to protest because often the laws are not always right. You know, just because it's a law, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily right. And in the case of, you know, chopping down trees in these beautiful ancient rainforests, just to, often the trees just go down wood chips. Um, you know, the bulldozers move in, they take selective trees and often they're only really using a really small percentage of the timber in that tree and the rest of it just gets left on the forest floor. Um, and it's used for things like, you know, somebody's coffee table. And I think, you know, there needs to be much more education around the importance of protecting these ancient rainforests and not using these wonderful, um, you know, old-growth timbers for things like, 
you know, somebody's coffee table or of the near ceiling or, you know, something like that. It it reminds me a bit about ivory. You know, many years ago people would buy ivory products and they would just see it as a as a um, as an ornament or some kind of status symbol that has ornaments in ivory. And, you know, they didn't realise that by buying that ivory, they were fueling this, you know, trade in, in, in ivory and the killing of not only elephants but rhinos and so on in Africa. Um, and now I think there's a lot more education around that. A lot of countries have made the importation of ivory illegal. And I think the same needs to happen with um, with rainforest timber. And it's terrific to see that it is starting to happen, Andrew. I mean, I think Bunnings has um, put a ban on selling um, rainforest timber, you know, and that's not just Australia, but particularly Asia, because a lot of the rainforest timber comes out of Asia. And that's just basically destroying the habitat for um, many of the world's most wonderful creatures, like the orangutan and so on. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, you only have to sort of look back at a, at a number of the, the big landmark campaigns that have happened over the last 30, 40 years you know, such as the, the campaign and the blockade to, to protect the wild Franklin River. I mean, if protests hadn't gone to that blockade and set it up and done those continual actions over the summer of 1983, that dam, that dam would have been built and that river would no longer be wild. And now, you know, 40 years later, that river is, is now like one of the top 10 whitewater rafting destinations in the world. It attracts lots and lots of tourists from all over the world um, who want to raft that river. So it's actually making far more money for the local economy than if it had been, been turned into a dam. Um, the Frank, the, um, the Daintree Rainforest, you know, is another case where, you know, there were plans in the 80s to build, you know, big roads through that area and, um, you know, fortunately protesters got out and... and um, and basically stood in front of the bulldozers and protected large tracts of that rainforest. There's still more that needs protecting, but um, at least some of those areas now are national parks, and the same with many rainforests in northern New South Wales. Um, in the Northern Territory, protesters formed a nine-month blockade to stop a uranium mine from being built in Kakadu National Park, and that mine was not built, a Jabaluka mine was not built. And just recently, we had protesters down in Tasmania that went into a logging coat where bulldozers, you know, were logging with the um, permission of the Tasmanian government, an area that is habitat for the swift parrot, which is critically endangered. There's only something like 300 of these beautiful birds left. And protesters locked on and, you know, basically stood there, stood their ground. And there's now been a reprieve, a logging reprieve. So the logging has stopped and, you know, there's now a court case pending on protecting that area. But, you know, if the protesters hadn't gone and done that, then that area would have just been felled. So I suppose the film is really showing the value of frontline action. And especially, you know, at this time, so many people are just fed up with the fact that governments aren't, aren't taking enough action. And they've decided, well, okay, what can I do? And one thing that people can do is, you know, join a group, get involved at a local level or, you know, see what sort of causes you, you're interested in supporting and um, and see what you can do, see how you can participate. 
and in some cases that means going to the front line. Mm. One of the things which I, I find really interesting is the, the choice of protests that you have used. They're, they are three really major protests in Australia and, and covering three very different aspects of uh, global destruction. How did you decide which ones to choose? Because as you just said, there's so many protests taking place because uh, there are so many uh, projects that are destroying the environment. I mean, reports uh, throughout the last few years have, have clearly shown that Australia is frustratingly uh, quite front, uh, quite at the front of um, destroying our environment and, uh, you know, enacting mm. terrible destruction upon the environment. So, yeah, how, how did you decide which particular stories to tell? Yeah, well, it was a good question, and I, I certainly did a lot of research on current campaigns and met met people involved in you know in many campaigns that are currently taking place around Australia. And in the end, I settled on, I suppose, following the people that were trying to stop the the big new coal mine going ahead in Central Queensland, the you know colloquially known as the Adani Mine, but the Carmichael Coal Mine, and. And one of the reasons why I chose that particular campaign was that I suppose that mine, um, I mean, coal it, coal is really an energy source of the past. You know, it was terrific in its day, but you know, we no longer need coal. There are many other cleaner forms of energy that can be utilised um, that won't be producing that sort of massive amount of carbon emissions that, that coal mining does. And, you know, the price of coal has sort of gone down right around the world and many, many countries are phasing out coal because they know it's just dirty energy. And it's it's ridiculous, really, that Australia is still supporting um, the mining of coal and still building new coal mines. Um, and they're not putting enough effort into working out how they can transition the economies of a lot of those little country towns where people have relied on working in the coal industry, you know, in some cases for, you know, three generations you've had people working in coal. And that story is kind of told in wild things, but not only from the um, the white European perspective, but from the Indigenous perspective, because often the Indigenous people were just moved off their land and people just moved in and just started mining coal without getting any permissions, without any kind of transfer of land or anything, any titles. And, you know, the Aboriginal people from that country, they, you know, they always knew that that mining coal would, you know, would potentially be dangerous, that, you know, it could be poisonous. And, um, you know, now now that is certainly proving to be the case with, um, you know, with the amount of carbon emission that, you know, that is being produced by, by fossil fuels. But people need jobs, you know, and, and you know, we, we fully appreciate that. It's just that what needs to happen is there needs to be a much more active transition to to clean energy and a real commitment by governments to to start building the, the necessary infrastructure that's needed in order to get that transition happening much faster than what is happening at the moment. The other um, the other big campaign is the for, is the, the forests and, and you know part of that is because Forests are just so so important because they're carbon sinks. They, you know, draw down carbon from the atmosphere, but they're also really important sources of habitat. And the 
they're really important homes for many, many creatures. You know, there's enormous biodiversity in forests. So we've, you know, Australia, we're very lucky. We've got a wonderful natural landscape. And because we've got a small population in Australia, by and large, you know, a lot of our landscapes are still intact. Um, but we need to keep them intact. We can't just um, destroy them. And one of the one of the potentials with those forests is, you know, if you can protect them and keep them as they are, then future generations will be able to visit those forests and see all the creatures, see all the biodiversity that lives in those forests. Who wants to go and see a clear fell? I mean, you know, there's nothing to see with a clear fell. And it's just ridiculous that ancient old-growth forests are largely being used for wood chips. Yeah, well, it's like I, I think if in Kalgoorlie, I know that they're talking about the the super mining pit that's there, that's you know nearing the end of its life, and it's like, and I've been there, and it's a big hole, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I know that they're talking about how to deal with that as a tourist attraction. And it's like, do people really want to travel that far to go and see? a big hole is there any interest in that no i don't think so and it's just the same as there's no interest in uh, you know seeing a, a place of massive destruction it's devastating you can't help but mm. think of all the displaced animals and uh, the the destroyed um aspect of it all and and the the, the devastation that's been added well, to, to just, climate change you know, now yeah. more than ever we you know as a species we need to be able to go to wild places. You know, if you go and walk in a park or you go and walk by a river, you go into a forest and you take a walk through that forest, I mean, you feel good. You actually, you know, you breathe in the fresh air, you can observe all the tiny little creatures, the birds, you know, the insect life and so forth that live in those forests or live in those wild places. And you come out feeling relaxed. You come out feeling relaxed, you feel better. And so they're kind of healing environments. Um, I think as, as a human species, there's so many stresses in our lives now. We all lead these really, really busy lives. And we need to take care of ourselves. And one of the best ways we can take care of ourselves is by spending time in the wild. Yeah. I think as well, you know, certainly with a lot of the world, obviously, in lockdown and things like that, and for Australians, at least, uh, international travel is not on the cards for a very long period of time. Uh, and domestically, travel is the best thing that we can do if we can, you know, see our own country and things like that. And I know certainly in Western Australia, as more WA people are uh, heading out and going in and seeing our natural land and things like that. And, you know, a lot of these people probably have never even travelled um, further than Midland. You know, they, they, they've hardly even gone to go and see their own particular land and so may not be aware of how much we're actually losing and, and how much is disappearing. And I know in, in down in Pemberton yeah. at the moment, I they're mean, doing logging. Yeah. Western Australia is, you know, such a beautiful state, such an amazing part of Australia. You know, you've got the wonderful forests of the of the south. You've got um, the incredible desert areas and and um, rocky gorges and so on in the Silver and up in the Kimberley. You've got um, the coral reefs at Ningaloo. Amazing wildlife. I mean, gosh, you know, you've really got it all in Western Australia. And you're lucky in the sense that you don't have a very big population there. So, you know, people would easily be able to go and find places to go camping and go walking. And I, 
hopefully, you know, with this lockdown, um, more and more people are discovering their own backyard and, and what exists in Western Australia. Yeah. I want to I want to shift to talking about politics for a moment as well, which is such a joyful discussion to have. But it, it seems that certainly in Australia, as, as you're talking about, we've got uh, President Biden who is is enacting a lot of uh, climate change actions and and changes that need to be instigated from an American perspective. But in Australia, there there seems to be a you know cross party, I guess, um, approach of sitting on your hands and not doing anything and i was reading that there was a there was pushback from the labor mp shane broad about the funding for uh for wild things and how he was frustrated that you know there was some funding possibly put towards it which i i I feel is personally quite absurd but there seems to be a, from a political perspective at least, such an antagonism towards both protesters and action on climate change. Um, how do we, how do we stop that? How do we change that particular perspective? Is it through films like this? Is it through more uh, public attention? Yeah, well, certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to make the film was to show that frontline action, you know, I think is really important and it is something that that does work. And if it hadn't been for the efforts of, of protesters, a lot of the, of the wonderful wild places in Australia would no longer exist. They wouldn't they just wouldn't be there anymore. Um, and I think, you know, as you're saying, you know, there has been a kind of political pushback and a clampdown on protesters. And there's an attitude that protesters are are doll bludgers, and you see this a lot in the film. You know, people um, will drive past a protest and they're yelling out, doll bludgers, get a job, and so on. And it's really unfair because so many of those um, protesters, they do have jobs. And, you know, the, the protesters that we focus on, um, you know, particularly say Lisa Searle, she will spend a, a certain amount of her time protecting the forest in Tasmania, but she's also a doctor and she will take time out away from her work as a protester to go and run a hospital in Central Africa for Medicines from Frontier. So she's, you know, somebody who, you know, is incredibly busy and incredibly committed to her, I suppose, beliefs um, in terms of actually protecting those forests, but also looking after the human beings on the planet and often those that are uh, more disadvantaged than others. Mm. Yeah. It's it's really great to see those people as well. Like I know certainly when I was in uh, a few years ago, we had protests uh, locally here uh, to stop a, a, a highway being dis- uh, constructed through uh, sensitive wetlands. And I was working at a hospital at the time, and a lot of the doctors who work there were out there before their their daily work protesting against it and then as soon as they need to be at the hospital they had to you know obviously leave the protests and go there but every minute of the day that they could be out there protesting it they were out there they, they there are people who have jobs and and you know the the, the notion of a, a, a jobless protester or, or um uh, certainly one of the things that was talked about was uh paid protesters and things like that which is absurd really um it, it's a fallacy. It doesn't exist, and I, I'm glad that your film exists to be able to show that, you know, these are there are people who have 
careers and they're putting them either on hold or taking their spare time to protest the destruction around the world. It's, it's really important that these kinds of things take place. So thank you for that. At least it's really important. Yeah. Yeah, and look, and particularly, you know, I think the film will have a really important role to play, you know, with young people as well, because a lot of young people are just very despairing at the moment about about their futures, about what's happening with climate change, the fact that there's, you know, such a lack of action, and they don't know what to do, and they're suffering from a lot of anxiety. And I think to see the stories of the teenagers that, you know, were once like that, feeling really anxious and unsure about about themselves and feeling depressed about their futures by the fact they've slowly started getting active and getting involved in the school strike for climate movement. It enabled them to, to start to feel like their voice mattered and um, that, you know, that they actually got really empowered by that, pro- by, by that process. And, you know, hopefully lots of young people will be inspired when they see the film to think, well, we can we can meet with other people. We can actually get active. We can, um, our voice, you know, does matter. Um, so I think, you know, in that sense, we really want the film to be used widely in schools. Certainly the cinema release that's starting um, February the 4th in many, many cinemas around Australia, certainly regional as well as in the capital cities. Um, you know, we'd love to see some school groups going to those cinema screenings. But if not, we'd love any teachers to be able to order the film um, through the Australian Teachers of Media website and get the film into schools. We've got a study guide um, to help teachers use the film in their classroom and we really, really encourage teachers to get the film into schools to encourage young people to believe that they, they can make a difference. Mm. I, I think that's the most powerful thing out of it and seeing the, the, the young folks you know, traveling around the world and making sure that uh, people are aware of the destruction that's taking place. I think this is a really important film and it's it's one that we need right now. And as, as you're saying, it, it's important for young audiences to see it. But I think there's a cross-generational uh, aspect to this that, that works so well. And uh, you've, you've made a really, uh, really great piece of work. So congratulations for that. And, and thank you as well as somebody who is, um, you know... Uh, sometimes you feel a little bit helpless, <laughs> I guess, when it comes to these kinds of things and you see the politics and, and the inaction and things like that. And then you see, you can watch a film like this and go, no, there are people who are out there who are making change and, and ensuring our future. And, uh, you know, for for people like myself, like I have an autoimmune disease, which means I can't go out and protest as much as I would like to. But mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. people like me, w- what can we do to help support uh, the protesters? Is there any kind of call to action uh, that we can possibly do? Look, I think I think you know, not, frontline action isn't for everyone. I'm I'm not saying everyone should you know head off to a blockade tomorrow. But I think there are lots of ways that, you know, each one of us can, can be involved. And sometimes that's just a matter of, you know, having a bit of a browse on the internet with some of these groups like Frontline Action on Coal, School Strike for Climate, um, Saving saving the Forests, and actually, you know, reading up on their website, joining their Facebook page, and actually starting to get engaged with the work that they're doing. Um, there's uh, some of your... Uh, listeners and viewers might have heard of a wonderful um, activist who started being an activist when she was about 14, about 20 years ago, and she started the 
Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Uh, she's just, you know, still been very, very active and she recently has started with a group of her colleagues a group called Groundswell and they're basically encouraging people to donate to that group and they will then determine, you know, where those little grants will go and they're making those grants particularly to groups that are involved in climate action. Most um, most communities will have a climate action group. You'd be surprised, you know, how many local communities, and I'm sure there's plenty in Perth, have started up their own little climate action group. And it's just a way of getting together with like-minded people and talking about what can be done, finding ways of sharing information, and even just starting at that local level um, with your own community, with your own council, to try and get some policies in place to reduce carbon emissions and get get us towards this low carbon future, which is what we all we all need. Yeah. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up. Um, I really appreciate the discussion and, and your time and, and your film as well, Sally. It's really, as I was saying, it's it's brilliant. Um, and I, I do hope that people head along to go and see it quite a lot and learn from it. And I, I think that this kind of thing is, I hope that in 10, 20 years' time we can look back and say, well, we're grateful of everything that we learned from these protests. And, uh, I mean, protesting will occur throughout the time and, and we'll at least be able to learn from things that have taken place and, and be able to say, well, it worked there, it will work here. And I think that's the main thing, that we we know that change can happen through people power, and that's really important. So thank you very much for that. Oh, look, I think if you just look back in history, you know, that's the way change does happen. It's mm. through people power. You know, any revolution that's happened, it's been through <laughs> the uprising of people. Um, yeah, Absolutely. Well, yeah. look, thanks very much, Andrew, for the chat. Yeah. And um, please, you know, people go along to the screenings that start from, I think the first screening at the Lunar in Leaderville is on January the 29th or 30th. I think um, so, We've got a yeah. Q&A after that screening. Yeah, yeah and Bob some Brown, really great Richard guests as well. Gold. Yeah. Really great guests. So that should be a fascinating um, uh, event and moderated by... The wonderful Kathy Henkel, who's from the WA Screen Academy. And it'll be in the cinemas after February the 4th. So that's an advanced screening on January the 30th. I want to thank Sally Ingleton for giving her time to talk about this wonderful film, Wild Things. Uh, there is, uh, as she mentioned at the end there, there are a lot of uh, Q&A sessions that are taking place around Australia prior to the film's release on February 4th. And I'll stick a link in the show notes for all of those details. If you're in Perth, Western Australia, January 30th at 4pm at Luna Cinemas in Leaderville, there is going to be a panel with director Sally Ingleton joining via Zoom. Dr. Bob Brown joining via Zoom, Zoom. Uh, Dr. Lisa Searle via Zoom, and moderator Kathy Henkel as well. And that is going to be a discussion you do not want to miss. I, I highly recommend seeing that. For everyone else, there are going to be screenings taking place uh, in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. And then it'll hit cinemas around Australia on February 4th. All the details are in the show notes. 
thank you for listening to this. I really hope you appreciate it and, and got something out of it. If you like what we do here, then head over to patreon.com forward slash the curb AU. As little as a dollar a month gives you access to uh, some exclusive reviews and uh, from $3 a month, there's some exclusive interviews as well, especially one with the star of First Cow, Orion Lee, that is available on there right now. Alternatively, just head over to the website, thecurb.com.au. It's had a bit of a, a facelift, a refresh uh, since I last spoke to you guys. And uh, hopefully you like the look of things. There are some really interesting uh, pieces on there and discussions and reviews and critiques that you might find worthwhile. Follow us on social media, CurbAU, on both Twitter and Facebook. And yeah, that's about it. Head along, go and see Wild Things. Uh, it's been a really bonza year for Australian films so year, so far. The Dry, Penguin Bloom, uh, High Ground has just come out as well. There's going to be an interview with Stephen Johnson coming up very, very soon. And, of course, Wild Things too. And there is also uh, Occupation Rainfall as well, which has hit Australian cinemas this week as well. So there are a lot of great Australian films out there. I know that there is a bit of a drought in regards to blockbuster films, but that's no less reason to head along to, to go and see an Australian film and support the Australian film industry. We need it. Thanks very much, guys. I will see you again soon. Take care. We built our castles high up on the rise So young, young and wild So young, young and wild Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products. Like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details.